Finance. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast where I get inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. I can't believe it, but Vicki Robin, the author of Your Money or Your Life, is joining me on today's show. As you probably know, Vicki and her co-author, Joe Dominguez, wrote one of the most important and most referenced books on financial independence, and she's done so much over the years to further the message of financial independence. So it's an incredible honor to get her on the show, and I really can't wait to hear, one, how the book came about in the first place and how this whole idea of financial independence emerged, and two, I want to find out what's changed Vicky and Joe had been talking about financial independence way back in the 60s and had seminars in the 80s and wrote the book and published it in the 90s. And, you know, a lot of years have gone by. And I am really interested in hearing how people's receptability to financial independence has changed. And also, if there's anything in the book that now just doesn't apply, and uh, if there's anything new that she's learned over the years that she now plans to add to the next version. So, Without further delay, I can't believe I'm saying this, but Vicki Robin, welcome to the Financial Independence Podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, it's my pleasure. So I know you're currently in the process of updating your money or your life, so I really appreciate you taking the time out of that to, to talk with me. And um, also, I just wanted to, before we start, just wanted to say a big thank you from the whole community. I know uh, your money or your life is like the Bible of the FI community, and it's you know everything. It's the book that everyone references and things, so just... Thank you from all of us for your contributions. Well, you're so welcome. It's it's actually been uh, such a surprise to uh, discover you all because until I took on this uh, update I, of Your Money, Your Life, I actually had no idea there was a big community out there. I presumed that people would say, oh, how are people responding to your book? I said, I don't have a like little recording, you know, in every book. I don't know what's happening out there. And to, to stumble on this community and to realize, as um, as Christy said, she said, you guys, you and Joe are like the Adam and Eve. And I feel like <laughs> Adam died and Eve stumbled off to this little island in the Pacific Northwest to Tender Garden and wandered out to, you know, this whole crowd of people who seem to think highly of the work that Joe and I did, which is just it's so moving it's really so moving that it's had that effect so oh yeah definitely it's uh that's really cool that you, you sort of just stumbled upon this online resurgence and we'll we'll definitely touch on that i want to talk to you more about that but um uh i sort of want to go back to the beginning if that's all right i i'm not sure. going to touch too much on the the nine steps in the book or anything like that because most of my audience has read it and if they haven't they will be soon i'm sure so um, I sort of want to just go back and figure out how it all came about. Like, obviously, oh. this all started back in the 60s. So um, if you wouldn't mind just taking us back to, you know, when you met Joe and how you came around to this idea. Uh-huh. Right. Well, uh, you, you do have to start with Joe and you have to go back to uh, 1950 when he was 12 years old. And uh, he was in like PS 38 or some like. Uh, uh, ghetto high school or junior high school, I guess, in Spanish Harlem in New York City, having grown up on welfare cheese with uh, one, his father having TB and being in a TB sanatorium and his mother not being able to speak English and him running the family from the time he was like two. Wow. So there's, there you have Joe, you know, and so he is like a total survivalist and uh, uber smart, you know, like, uh, you know, IQ testing, really, really smart, but who knew back then? And he had to write this little essay about, you know, what do you want to be by the time you're 30? And he said financially independent, and he had no idea what that meant, but it was like a guiding light. Uh, so he, um, I don't have to do his whole story, but actually by the time he was just like days before he turned 31, he declared financial independence. And uh, he'd amassed about, this is your, you're going to find this amazing. Uh, he'd amassed about 70 grand. And, uh, but at that time, uh, interest rates on treasury bonds, which were these, where the smart money went, if you wanted to be financially independent, were someplace around 7%. Uh, and in the next 10 years, they peaked at 15%. Uh, and when I actually got on board with a lot of my investing. So, um, 
and and of course the dollar was worth a third of what it is now. So he had an adequate income for life at a very, very minimal lifestyle, but having grown up in poverty, he knew how to do that. And and his goal really was was freedom, but it wasn't just freedom like, you know, getting out. He was he'd also trained as an altar boy and he, you know, he had that classic Catholic moment where you know, do I go into sin or do I go into being a priest? And uh, so he had a deeply religious sense and he wanted to get back to that. He wanted to. So anyway, that's Joe. And actually, so my story is that very different. I grew up, my both my parents were professionals uh, and I grew up fairly privileged and went to an Ivy League university and, you know, was I draw I graduated at the top of my high school class. I actually graduated, you know, cum laude from a, from an Ivy League university, and I had no interest in it at all. I knew there was something more to life, and I didn't know what it was. But I spent my junior year. I wangled away. It was not like a common thing to do, but I wangled away to spend my junior year in Europe, study in Spain, and travel extensively, and live on a pittance. You know, I learned how to live on oranges and bread and travel everywhere. Um, and so for me, the I learned my frugal habits early on. For me, frugality meant freedom. Frugality meant freedom to roam, to experience. I'm, I'm somebody who learns about life by being in it, by being close to it and having, having sort of edgy experiences <laughs> where I have to solve a problem. I have to solve forward in order for my to survive. And so I met Joe actually in, um, well, we were both uh, traveling and I had enough money barely to survive for who knew how long. And um, so his methodology and of course his quest for freedom and spiritual evolution matched mine perfectly. Uh, and so we teamed up and um, it was very common back then. You know, all you have to do is say, oh, I went on the road in 1969 and everybody knows what you were up to. Right. <laughs> and so and so we we actually went on this spiritual quest, like what is true? You know, what makes life worth living? Really, the questions that are embedded in your money, your life, you know, people see it as a money management system, but it's really a consciousness system. It's actually asking you to reflect on what is concrete in terms of what is really valuable. Um, and so we went on that quest and we found answers for ourselves. And eventually what we found was people didn't want the spiritual teachings. What they wanted to know was why do we why didn't we have to work? Right. Um, <laughs> and so uh and so out of that was born this seminar that we taught for about a decade before your money or life came into being um we first taught it you know in our living room and then we taught it um in the basement of a church and since we were sort of resolutely financially independent you know we were financially independent not only as a uh as a a money reality, but as a stand in the world that, you know, you don't need all this stuff to be happy. There's something greater than consumerism. We really wanted to change minds and hearts. So we would give away all the money from our seminars. Um, we would find an organization we wanted to support and we would produce a seminar in order to give them all the money, which also blew people's minds. Over the course of many years, we gave away a million dollars in 800 small grants. Wow. Uh, and to organizations, you know, they didn't have to prove a track record. They were often very small, you know, startups. And what we would assess was the integrity of the person who was and the team that was doing this project, what their goals were and how clearly they lived their truth. And so we would just give away money. I mean, we gave, you know, like $500, $5,000. Our biggest one was 25 grand. Um, and that one was to publicize the film Affluenza, which I'm not sure you know about. I don't. It was my generation's version of the minimalists, really. Um, and it was about consumerism and this disease of affluenza, you know, this basically being, you know, addicted to affluence. 
Uh, it's a great film. I'll send you a link because somebody's put it up on, you know, put it up on YouTube. Oh, perfect. Four- yeah, I'll link to that in the show yeah, notes then, it's definitely. Fabulous. It's fabulous. And, you know, a lot of our one-liners are the ones that the minimalists use now. It's like every generation discovers this because it's so obvious. It's so hidden in plain sight that you don't have to overconsume in order to be happy. Uh and it's very American. Every generation, you know, the simplicity movement, the arts and crafts movement, of course, the transcendentalists, you know, this is like completely embedded in the American character. This whole idea of of minimalism at the at the material level so that you can liberate your spirit for something that's greater than stuff. So anyway, we, we produce these seminars. Uh, we could take the whole po- podcast telling the story. Maybe you. Well, let me, I'll chime in real quick just to give everybody sort of like time scales. So, um, I believe you, you met Joe in the late 1960s. Um, and just to give everyone an idea of how much $70,000, $1969 when Joe retired, that's roughly about 476000 in 2017 dollars. So that gives people a better idea because 70000 sounds very low, but obviously that was quite a while ago. Um, so, all of these seminars, they're taking place in the early 1980s. Is that right? Yeah. In the early 1980s, our first one was in 1980. And from 1980 to 1984, uh, we produced many seminars uh, throughout the Western United States. You know, and the first one was like four people. And the last one we did was 400. I mean, people just pack in to these seminars. And then we, we actually transformed that into a tape course we sold that there was another 10,000 tape courses that sold and and finally the media discovered us and and there was an article in a magazine about us in this program and an agent in New York sitting in a bathtub read this article and she said this is it and so she convinced us to write a book wow and that and then the first version of the book was published in 1992 is that correct and you were you were the main driver behind the writing of the book is that right yeah, so so a bit about my story is that um, number one, I'm really social, I'm verbal, I'm articulate, and I like being out and about and among people. And so I went to a conference in 1989 uh, in LA that was the first public hearing in the United States on this idea of sustainable development, which has now been completely corporatized. But back then it was revolutionary. It was really how are we going to resolve economic expansion and environmental integrity. And there was a World Commission on Environment and Development that traveled throughout the 1980s, early 80s, the world, asking this question, holding hearings. And so, but the United States wouldn't have a hearing because, you know, <laughs> this is not, you know, as, as, as George Bush Sr. said, the way Americans consume is not up for discussion. This is not up for discussion. This is, right. you know, after 9-11, you know, uh, Junior said, go out and buy a tie. You know, that's how we're going to deal with this. Uh, so anyway, so this was the first U.S. hearing. And so all of the commissioners who traveled the world, you know, these august people were there. And all the heads of major environmental organizations were there. And I was like this little pipsqueak in the back row. And every single one of them would come up to the stage and they would do their spiel. And then they would basically say... The driver of all of this that we're talking about is the level and pattern of consumption in North America. And then they would shrug, like, we can't do anything about this. Right. <laughs> and I'm sitting back there and I'm going like, we've been teaching this program for nine years now. And we've surveyed people who did the program. And we found out that on average, people who actually did the program for six months, their expenses would go down someplace between 20 and 25%. And almost to the person, they said their quality of life had gone up. Many people said, I don't know what I used to buy. You know, I don't know where that extra 25% used to go. Or even if I do, my freedom to live the life I love is more important to me than whatever that stuff was. So I'm sitting back there and I'm thinking, we have the solution to the biggest problem on the planet. It just has to be, everybody has to do it. And I got on fire. I mean, I was like a racehorse that took the bit in the mouth and didn't care if it died before the finish line. You know, it was like, I'm doing this. So I brought that passion back to Joe and the community of people who had formed around us. And, that's what made us willing to listen to this agent and um, write the book. 
So I basically, Joe didn't, he, he said he had a writer's block. I don't know what it was, but I wrote the book. We would sit together, we would talk about each chapter and then I would write it. And, um, and then he refused to go on the road and do any publicity. And I was like panting, you know, like, let me get, <laughs> You know, like, because I really thought we were going to get everybody. And at the end of that conference in 1989, Noel Brown, who was the head of the United Nations Environment Program, gave this eloquent, you know, beautiful African accented English. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a decade to turn this around. This is the turnaround decade. And I thought, yep, we're going to do this. By 2000, we're going to have this thing nailed. We're going to lower consumption in North America by 20 to 25 percent. We will be living within the environmental means. And we all we have to do is get everybody. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, and within within weeks of, of publication, our publicist got us on Oprah. Wow. And. Oprah held up the book. This was back in the day before she was, you know, she was popular, but she held up the book and she said, this is a great book. It's going to change your life. And the next day it was a New York times bestseller. Wow. Uh, and so that began the mercurial rise of this book. It was, it, it was, I don't know. It was, it was like an idea as time has come. It was like, the right people. It was our, maybe our idealism and our purity or our attempt at purity. We weren't pure, uh, brought an integrity to the work that, that made it shine. I have no idea. Or maybe it was just truth being spoken into, you know, a society of lies. I have no idea what happened, but it was a New York times bestseller. And then it was five years on the Business Week bestseller list of the year Joe died in 1997. It was one of the top 10 business books in the United States. You know, and we were a bunch of people who lived in the woods and on the road. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, but, but, but we had this huge heart for the work and this huge mission. So, yeah, and so that's, that's um, what started happening. I was on Oprah again. Joe refused to do it. He refused to do anything but the morning shows, you know, the big ones. And I, I, have, I did probably 2,000 media interviews in that decade. Wow. Um, and he was diagnosed with cancer soon after the book was published. And he died in 1997, in the first weeks of 1997. And I was still shot out of a cannon. I still thought I, so basically really till 2000, which is when our, when we set our goal of like the world's going to be changed, you know, right. <laughs> you know, like clap your hands together and, and go on and do something else. You know, that all the indicators were that even though, you know, tangibly we could say a million people had read the book it was in a dozen languages yeah, I tra when I travel when it came out in Spain, I traveled to Spain and it became an instant bestseller in Spain. You know, same with the Taiwan. You know, I mean, even all of that, even the the best, you know, Humpty Dumpty efforts. Um, you know, savings rate in the United States was down. Opportunities cons to consume had multiplied out of control. And I went into a sense of despair. I mean, I had repeated myself for the cause. I can't tell you how many times I was bored with it. I was stuck. Right. <laughs> I was, I'm an avatar for something, you know, and, and everybody projects on me that I'm, you know, and I don't have any space. When do I get to be financially independent? When do I get to like travel and, and screw up again? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> when do I get to find out what else is in me? you know, when do I get to be free? So, so that, that this, so now we're in the late nineties when, when you're feeling this, um, before we, before we move forward, I just wanted to see what you thought, like, obviously as you're preaching this message for so many years there, you must've seen some, uh, different changes in sentiment and like the receptability of people. And did, were you able to like correlate that with anything going on? Like, you know, economic booms and busts or anything like that, or has it been as pretty much as the steady acceptance of the message, but then, you know, not as much implementation potentially and sometimes as opposed to others. 
Yeah, that's a great question. What I would say is that really the message went down like butter because it's, it's, it's common sense. We weren't preaching environmentalism. We weren't preaching spiritual transformation. We weren't preaching anything. We were just trusting that if people paid attention to the flow of money and stuff in their lives in light of their values and what really made them happy, that the transformational process would happen. And, and I have a great faith in, in individuals that if you free your mind and your time from doing things, you know, as Will Rogers said, you know, buying things that you don't need to impress people you don't like, you know, <laughs> like yeah. you have, if you free yourself from that insane process uh, that only serves the industrial growth economy, then you will find within you that something that is yours to do. And I trusted that if we could liberate people to be themselves in the world, to give their gifts, that things would change. And I also bought into a, a change theory that uh, basically it says, you know, if you can get 5% of the population to think in a new way, then that idea is anchored. And if those, that 5% goes out and influences the next 15% and you have 20% of the population who believe the same thing, it's that idea is going to spread. So we had like utter faith that all we had to do is find the 5%. And we tallied up one time, you know, between all the morning shows and People Magazine and New York Times and all that blah, 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 blah. You know, we'd reached half the country. You know, we were like systematic. We were going to like do this. And so, but the theory didn't work because there are, are system conditions you know, um, that are resistant, deeply resistant to, to, uh, individuals waking up. Mm -hmm. uh, but that said, in my travels, I couldn't find anybody who wasn't frugal in all my radio interviews. You know, I knew I hit the mark when the interviewer would say, you know, actually this is exactly how I live. And then they tell me about some bargain they had. <laughs> it is, this idea of frugality is deeply American. It just needs to be framed, not in a punitive way, but in a, you know, offering somebody an opportunity to free themselves up from keeping up with the Joneses. So I didn't find that the idea gained more reception. There was a lot. I mean, this was like, you know, it was Clinton years, you know, this was like the go-go 90s. Right. This was like. This idea was countercultural. We had people poo-poo us about our investment things because they were getting 40% of their money. Of course, they lost it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you know, but we weren't around to watch that. Um, yeah, so I would say that we were speaking to the 20% of the population who already knew it. And I, I used to say, you know, I'm making the world safe for frugality. I'm standing up here. I'm healthy. I don't look bad. I'm well-dressed, you know, and I live on about seven, $8,000 a year. So, you know, you're free to own this part of yourself that loves a bargain that, that doesn't love, you know, getting into debt for things that really don't make any difference. I was able to affirm a segment of the population to surface themselves and sort of have bragging rights with other people. So, uh, so what systemic things do you think stopped it from expanding beyond that 20%? It, well, there. what's driving consumerism? You know, basically, early on in the industrial growth economy, you know, we were actually liberating people from hard labor. You know, there was, there were, you know, you go from cooking on a wood stove to cooking on an electric stove and you've got electricity that comes right into your house. You go from carrying water to having a spigot in your house where you can have water and then you go to having hot water. I mean, there we have to realize that we came out, you know, the United States was in a tremendous depression. And also before the Industrial Revolution, I mean, most stuff happened through human labor. So these liberating people with things they really, really needed to free up their time, like hot water, hot running water in the house. But that habituated people to more that sort of more is better mentality. And after a while, the uh, the companies, the manufacturing companies that produced all these products discovered that, you know, in order for them to survive, they needed to increase their markets. 
Right. Yeah. I, I, I'm reminded of a Henry Ford quote. I think it was that he's like, when, when he decided to go to the 40 hour work week and he's like, we, people need time to consume all of this stuff that we're, we're making. And currently they're working too much and don't have enough time to consume everything that we're producing. Bingo, 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 bingo. So basically back in the, I think it was like the 1950s, uh, when the mark when advertising started to come into its own, there was like one one major uh, spokesperson for the advertising industry saying said we have to convince people to want what they don't need. That's <laughs> how we expand our markets because export, you know, like at that point, you know, ships. It was like a bigger deal. The United States was still quite insular. So basically, the advertising industry was born in order to convince people to want what they don't need in service to corporate profit. And that's very, very, very deep in us. You know, basically, if they say that 75 percent of the American economy is consumption, and I don't know if that that number is still true. That's the number I repeated in the 1990s. Anyway. <laughs> you know, so basically to question people to question the whole activity of consumerism is so not, it's not anti-American. It's deeply American. It's just anti-corporatism. And I used to say to audiences, I said, like, look, this is nuts. You don't go and you don't eat like a high fat diet and overeat and sugar and, and salt and fat and all this stuff in order to keep your neighbor who's a heart surgeon employed. You don't do that. <laughs> right. That's nuts. Well, that's what's happening when you fill your garage with more cars and toys and stuff than you need. We've lost a basic sanity. So and and, you know, now we can take a look at the corporate environment and we can take a look at the in the United States politics. You know, I mean, basically the dark money <laughs> and the PACs and the super PACs um, and Citizens United. I mean, this has been so enshrined that the, the rich in the Reagan era, it was, you know, the Laffer curve and the trickle down economy. People were sold that idea. Well, if like the rich get richer, then it's going to like rain money on us all and the population has been so confused by this fundamentally this huge experiment in propaganda of like um <laughs> dirtying our minds with ideas that uh that rationally don't make any sense uh that that the the mind is confused and so we don't we fail to notice that the rich getting richer hasn't done squat for the rest of us but that story still persists and it persists in service to the people who have the money and own, you know, have the ability to own politicians and the media. I mean, now we're, we're sort of into my lefty politics, but you know, it's like, it's like you're at, you're at one end of the river, you know, and you notice that there's, this is a terrible image, but this is the story that I used to tell. I mean, you see, you see all these like dead babies floating by or these like little little kids just struggling, struggling. And so everybody jumps in to save the little kids who are struggling and fish them out. And, but, you know, my question was, who's tossing these kids? In the <laughs> yeah. You know, let's go upstream, however hard the path is and find out who's doing that. So I don't think I have it nailed. I think there's probably forces I don't understand, but surely there are. So do you think the solution is to, to, to go upstream or is it to convince so many people downstream or <laughs> not, not convince them, but show them how good life could be within this other way of life and then have them discover that and then, then, then reach some critical mass where obviously the people upstream have to take notice. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, here are my thoughts on that, and now it's great that I'm talking to you because I'm so heartened by encountering this this FI community. Uh, you know, the downstream actions is what our theory was in the 90s. If we change enough of these people, if we save enough of these people, there'll be an awakening, mm -hmm. you know. Um, you know, teach the little babies to swim, <laughs> you right. know. <laughs> um, and then I had this come come to – Jesus moment where I, I was at this meeting in the late, the late nineties with these global leaders and realized this is way bigger than I knew. Uh, and so then I formed, uh, this is after Joe died. Um, I 
gathered all of the authors and activists for the for simplicity and frugality of that time of my generation into a group. And I raised money so that we could meet and we formed something called the Simplicity Forum. And the idea was, is there a way that together we can challenge, we can form common cause and challenge these big ideas, you know, write op-eds in the newspaper, not be like individuals who can be picked off one by one, but be a force. Can we be a force? Can we be a political force? Um, and we met as long as the money lasted. <laughs> we stopped meeting. We, it was a great period of time. Um, but what I see now is that you all are naturally collaborative because the environment is naturally collaborative. You know, you all hyperlink to one another. <laughs> you one another's stuff you understand how to do this which we didn't understand back then we didn't have the tools we didn't have the internet <laughs> can you imagine <laughs> we, we just had books um and we had you know writing an op-ed for one of the three main newspapers you know really it was a very different environment so there's an environment now where there can be a spread strategy for commons you know financial common sense you know, freedom, happiness, and service, purpose, you know, service to the whole, there's a better opportunity for this to spread. And that's one of the reasons, not only do I like y'all, but um, <laughs> one of the reasons I'm excited to convene with you all is to talk about how do we be a collective force in the collective conversation, not just be a sidelight for a small number of people who wake up. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know how we do it. I don't know if it's an either or, I don't know if we have to have people all along the river, you know, at every, you know, have people who fish out the little kids and have people who, you know, change the laws and people who, um, you know, religious leaders who awaken people's conscience. Like, you know, one of our biggest allies right now is the Pope. <laughs> you know, this Laudate say is all about the toxicity of consumerism. You know, so so in a way, it's 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 coordinating or noticing or hyperlinking or whatever we do. It's it's having people all along the river with this different message, and it may be that we have to work, you know, deeply political. We probably do, you know, in order, because we're on the, in the United States and in Europe, I mean, we're on this edge of this hyper-nationalist impulse, which is very dangerous. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so there's an element to this of just biting the bullet and being political, taking stands, speaking truth to power, uh, getting yourself meetings with the governors and the <laughs> senators and the president, you know, getting yourself meetings with people. I think all of it is currently necessary. And that's just my politics. That's not, you know, that's not financial independence. I'm fine, you know, with people just, you know, getting in your sailboat and sailing, <laughs> fishing from your sailboat. I mean, I'm fine with whatever floats your boat, whatever is really truly yours to do and brings you great joy. I trust that in people. But for me, I am now focused on the systemic forces. I can't wait to talk to you more about this when we when we meet up in the UK in August. I'm really, really excited to meet you. And yeah, I'm sure there's going to be lots of really good conversations. I'd like to just jump back again, just to the late 90s. So, you know, you Joe's just passed away. And you've been, you know, delivering this message for quite a while. And you feeling like you may have hit a critical mass at this point, possibly. So what happened after that? Well, as I say, I mean, I, I was like the Energizer Bunny. I mean, Joe died and I kept going. Um, and it was really in that period of time between 1997, 8, 9, and 2000 when I was going to these international meetings and starting to do organizing. Um, and I was, you know, I was going upstream. I was trying to find the upstream places. Um, yeah, as I say, in the year 2000, someplace around there, I started to despair 
And given my personality, I did, I just did more. (laughs) (laughs) You know how like, like it's not, so you do more of the same to think, oh, well, and I convened uh, a group of thought leaders in the United States who were, had developed strategies like Your Money, Your Life that had influenced hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, with this uh, change of consciousness and change of practice. That's what I saw Your Money, Your Life is. And we were going to like find the lever long enough. We were going to like form common cause and find that lever. And out of that group came quite a number of initiatives, uh, including a training program that's gone around the world that's called Awakening the Dreamer, Changing the Dream. I developed something called Conversation Cafes, which because part of what we saw was needed was not just, you know, a, a person standing up on the stage and broadcasting ideas to people out there who would adopt the ideas. But what we needed was a conversation among everybody. Like, is this working for you? What makes life, you know, we needed, people needed to talk to each other, not listen to us. And so I developed this uh, process called Conversation Cafes, which has since, it's a very simple process and agree set of processes and agreements that actually can shift a conversation. We used to say shift from small talk to big talk. And it's, you know, combination of very classic dialogue processes, but designed for people who didn't know each other in public spaces like cafes to be able to have substantive conversations about the things that matter most. So developed that one in 2001 Um, And I started the Simplicity Forum, and out of that came something called Take Back Your Time, um, which has been a fabulous initiative to raise awareness about how we have traded, um, you know, we have gone for more money instead of more time, that the promise of the Industrial Revolution was that it would liberate human time, but we got convinced to spend more and more time on the job to have more and more money. And so it's trying to raise awareness. It's like a time activism. It's very interesting. Mm. And then in 2004, uh, just almost exactly seven years after Joe died, I was diagnosed with stage three colon cancer. So I had my own wall that I hit. And yeah, that's something I wanted to dive into a little bit more, if you don't mind it, because you've been you know, talking about these ideas and all of these ideas sort of like get to the core of like what you want as a human and what you want your life to be. And you've been living this life for decades. But I I would imagine that, you know, a stage three cancer diagnosis would then even force you to look more into those those big ideas. Was that the case? Uh, no, actually, uh, what it did is force me to face my own terror of living in a world that's coming apart. And that a lot of my activism was trying to build a big enough bubble of sanity around me, convince enough people around me (laughs) to wake up so that I could feel safe in this world. I was completely disconnected from self-care. So I was completely subsumed in my mission and purpose, which would seem you know, noble, and it was deeply noble and satisfying, but there was a little human being inside me that was not getting fed at all. Mm. You know, when you, when you become somebody who's like a public figure and, you know, an avatar and people project everything onto you, you can lose, you can lose a sense of, of anything fresh or new. I I was, I, I sort of went back down to the very sort of spring of my life, you know, where my life was bubbling out, you know, to find out who am I now? I asked the question, what else in my, my body wants to live that hasn't had a chance to live in this body? Hmm. <laughs> so I resigned from world changing. I really did. I moved to this village I live, live in on another island and um, I painted I sang in a choir, you know, I had, it was the first time I really just, this is my life, you know, my life is, but this is my life. This is Vicky gets financially independent. And so it was like, I I got myself, I was like, I'm into the littler picture, you know, and all my friends, all my old friends were still into like bigger picture, change the world. And I'm like, I just like, I like, I just want a little picture. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> anyway, I live in this town of a thousand people. And a couple of years later, I, I got on to the relocalization movement. And I used to call that your, your money or life at the level of community. It's like tracking and evaluating the flow of resources through a community, a town, an island, a city. You know, what does it take us collectively to survive? Because in an era of diminishing resources and climate disruption, et cetera, you know, I think we're going to be thrown on our own more. You know, people are going to have to become resourceful again. And so what does it take to be resourceful in a real community? Because I live on an island and we have a little bridge 45 miles to the north and we have a ferry to the south. You cut those off and I live in an earthquake zone. Those could get cut off. These 70,000 people or 65,000 people who live on this island, this is it. (laughs) So it's a perfect thought experiment about what does it take? really to survive you know this island is my go bag this island is my emergency you know kit mm-hmm. uh, and so i got deeply interested in that and i organized one of the, with some friends one of the early transition town groups which i don't know if you've heard of transition towns but it's an approach to community organizing in light of the possibility uh of less fossil fuel energy in the future mm-hmm. Um, and also in the possibility that there will be greater joy, fun, connection, you know, things that make life worth living if we take our eye off of the fossil fuel growth economy and put our eye on what makes life, what what is life here. Uh, it comes out of the UK. Uh, and so we organized a group and, and did a lot of potlucks and we <laughs> groups and we did a lot of work and and basically I'm still doing that work here on the island. I'm still paying attention to what's it going to take for us to be self-sufficient. And out of that, I I came to understand that even though it's a semi-rural island, even though in the middle of the island, we have some of the best farmland, actually, the deepest, deepest topsoil, best farmland in the United States, we have our own prairie. Even though all of that, uh, we we import 95% of our food. And you could only survive for two weeks in August or something like that, is there, right? if, if you had to feed everyone? That was my, my oh my God moment. And <laughs> you know, when I have an oh my God moment, that's like, I get busy on that one. I don't go into denial, I go into action. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I undertook with no interest in changing the world, just my own curiosity of, could I eat within 10 miles of my home? What would that what would that look like? Could I survive? So I did a month long experiment and learned deeply about the abundance of what's around me and the, the deep flaws in the industrial food system. And I learned some of what we need to do here. Some of like the big missing pieces in our food economy that we need to grow and have worked with different groups and friends in the years since to build up our local food system. And it's a, it, it's not like, you know, snap your fingers and it happens because it's a real community and not everybody agrees with you. You can't just like be a dictator work with real people with diverse interests. So, and this all led to your other book, blessing the hand that feeds us, uh, all of this, I, all these experiments and all of this thinking about sustainable living. Totally. Yeah. So I wrote a book about my experiment and in my 10 mile diet uh, and called blessing the hands that feed us. It has not been a market success like your money, your life, but your money, your life is I'm asking people to wake up and sort of smell the, the roses. And in this one, I'm asking people to do something pretty hard, which is to wean yourself, you know, increasingly from the grocery store as your source of food. And so it's asking people to wean themselves from convenience. I am very interested in working with people and communities now who are doing some aspect of this kind of relocalization work, building up local food economies, building up local manufacturing, doing you know planning processes where you take a look at what are our natural resources here. And uh, I guess that is what I encourage other people to do. So I'm, I'm in the middle of this. And then 
I heard a lecture where I realized that it was somebody, one of my old colleagues, talking about some vision for a sane economy. And I thought, buddy, <laughs> we tried that. I don't know that we're going to get everybody to do anything different. And I was so disturbed that there wasn't anything new on the horizon that could change the, that dominant story of money that I realized, oops, maybe I have more to do in this money realm. And so I convened a group at that conference around this question of, should I update your money, your life? And, and is there another conception of money and, and consumption that can guide us forward? And half the conference showed up at that session and everybody from the oldest person to the youngest person was in fear about their financial future. Wow. And I thought, that is nuts. And I especially had a feeling I didn't really know the, the depth of what young people are into where they have been convinced to go into debt f for educations that will never make them enough money to pay off the debt. That's crazy. It's and absolutely thought, crazy. Yeah. And I thought, you know, what kind of society bags its old people to poverty and 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 treats its young people as the next profit center, the next sort of tulip craze? I thought, this is not okay. So that's where the energy came for doing what I call the millennial makeover, you know, partnering with some millennials to understand, you know, what's the circumstance that people are fledging into now? How are they making it? And how can this Your Money, Your Life program, the classic program, be relevant to people now, you know, people in their, you know, from, from their 30s on down? And that's what I'm in the middle of. And I'm working with some great millennials and I, I'm actually deeply energized. And that's when I found you guys. You know? <laughs> oh my God. There's like, the world is full of people who think this way. It's full of people who think this way. How exciting. So I feel like I'm, I'm doing this in the, not in a vacuum, but in a context of, millennials really you know and you know there's some people who are older than that but you know people who are figuring out that that you know we can complain all we want about the condition that the boomers have left the world but you know what we're gonna we're gonna actually live in this world and we're gonna figure out how one lives in this world and makes a beautiful life in this world well, that's fantastic and yeah it's it's great that you're you're back into it all because i'm excited to see what you come up with and I don't know how far along in the process you are for the new version of your money or your life, but is there anything that you know has changed? Is there any advice that hasn't held up? Obviously, you know, step nine is investing and that changes quite a bit, but any of the core steps that you think haven't held up or is there anything that you know you want to add for this new version that um, uh, it wasn't in the original? Mm, it's a great question. Really great question. What I notice after years of people uh, doing this program and, and communicating with me is that the core of the program really is steps two, three, and four. It's really m realizing that money is, in your experience, money is simply the life energy, the hours you trade for it. And so personalizing that definition of money is the transformational heart of this program. And so from that realization, from doing the calculation for the real hourly wage, um, it transforms your sense of consumption from being the prize for a hard work week to being something that's going to send you into another hard work week. So people become natural savers. I think it's like I'm not dinking with the nine step program per se, but I'm. I'm the emphasis is on a different syllable <laughs> it is basically is that transformational core. And then the putting your expenses into categories rather than it's sort of like a zero budgeting process where it's rather than sitting down around the kitchen table and deciding how to spend your, you know, basically, you know, your income. It's basically an experiential mm -hmm. process of buying something and asking yourself, is this worth the life energy? It's a process of being conscious in your relationship with the material world. And I think that is another transformative step is like 
you take your expenses and you put them into categories and you tell yourself the truth about yourself, you know, yeah, right. Yeah. I have a drug habit, you know? <laughs> it's like, I don't know if it's in the food category, but, you know, uh, like a third of my money is going to my drug habit, you know, but you discover that you stop telling yourself lies by by actually concretely thinking about where each of these expenses fits in a pattern that is your life. It's not a budget book pattern. It's a pattern that's derived from your life. And then for each of those steps, you ask yourself those core questions. Does it make me happy? Is it in service to anything that I think is important? And, you know, would I be spending this money this way if I didn't have to work for a living? That piece is, if I could just deliver that piece with all in all its glory, I think I trust that the rest of it works out. So the whole thrust for financial independence, I'm redefining that. Um, and yes, you know, there's going to be people like you guys who figured it out and you become FI and there's a fascination with how to do it, whether you do it through a job or through investing and you, anyway, all of that is for a rarefied group of people who actually want to commit to that. But I think the majority of people that I will reach are the people who are willing to undertake this consciousness process. And, and you'll not be surprised that in the chapter on financial independence, I spend quite a bit of time talking about what I call your arc, to build your arc that will float your boat for the rest of your life. And that there are basically four, I call it four pillars of wealth, one of which is involves money, <laughs> but the other three. I call it an arc because A is for your abilities. It's the things you can do for yourself so you take it out of the money economy and have it in the do-it-yourself economy. But there are also skills that you can sell or trade if need be. You know, So basically building those skills, whether it's you know, website design or you know, whatever, whatever those skills are, you know, coaching people and you know, success. I mean, it's like this – investing in those skills that will both make your life happier, less expensive and valuable to others sufficiently that they, it's tradable or can bring you money. That's a big part of it. You know, I want to be, I want to, I want to live among empowered people, you know, people who can do stuff, who are competent, who just don't flap their arms when anything goes wrong and try to figure out what person I should call to fix it for me. So, so your abilities is part of your kit, you know, it's part of your financial independence. Um, and then the R is for relationships and, you know, loneliness is epidemic and loneliness is expensive because there's a range of things that you will go and do that cost you money, you know, from your yoga workshop, to your therapy to, you know, like your, you know, bar tab, you know? Mm -hmm. it's, it's like, you know, it's expensive to be lonely. And so I think consciously um, building and repairing your close in relationships, the people who will take care of you over time. I just, I just went through a hip replacement surgery and I had probably 20 friends take care of me, you know, come in, cook a meal, you know, put my laundry in the, in the washer. And I call that community as currency. You know, it's like, field. So that's the, your relationships are the intimate people who will show up for you in times of need. A friend in need is a friend indeed. Otherwise, you know, you're going to have to use every kind of insurance to survive because you're going to have old age insurance and you're going to have your sickness care insurance. And, you know, you, you turn to the insurance industry to assure yourself of things that people used to provide for one another. And also in the United States, and I, I don't know if it's even in Europe now, I mean, we're losing our social safety net. So mm -hmm. these are your social safety net. And then the, the K is the hard C in community. Um, I wish it worked better, but it doesn't. So it's like the arc. And community is is different from relationships because your relationships are the pe intimate people who show up for you. Your community is what is the social safety net? Can I grow food? Is there water? You know, it's like it's your place on earth. 
you know, what grows here? What is the climate like? Are there uh, community organizations where people tend to one another? It's, it's choosing and building and participating in a real place on the planet. I think that's important. And then ask is for your stuff. You know, is it durable? You know, are you transforming things that are flows, like I'm going to upgrade my computer every two years, to things that are, are, are your stockpile, you know, your things that will last longer than you will. They can be put in your grave with you, you know, like the ancients did with their gold. You know, so basically I'd, I, that's a piece. I want to draw people's attention to becoming a competent, uh, connected human is a piece of your security. And it's maybe a bigger piece of your security than your final S, which is your savings. And then from that, I go to, okay, fine, you saved your money somehow or another. Now, where do we put it? And I go through Joe's strategy of, of treasury bonds, why that worked brilliantly back then, may work brilliantly again. We don't know right now. It's so conservative that most people won't do it, but here's what the traditional was. Mm -hmm. I go through my choices, which are uh, diversity. I, I invest in local businesses. I, I invest in, in solar companies. I, I'm investing. I'm a values investor where I'm putting my money and I'm, you know, basically I'm getting 5% of my money free and clear and and a lot more because I built two little apartments on the ground floor of my house and so I have rental income and eventually I'll trade one of those apartments for somebody to take care of me because I'm 72 and I think about this now um you know so basically I've I'm a I'm a values based investor so I talk about those choices and I'm going to talk about you know the index fund the all the varieties of people who are using index funds and then some people who are using real estate and some people who are you who are active investors you know so i'm just saying there's a range of choices but i i want people to have a basic foundation and then from that basic foundation you build and i'm also redefining financial independence really as having choice in your life about where you put your life energy it's i don't think set for life works anymore i'm not sure it ever worked um, were, were you guys the ones that popularized that term or created it even? Well, I mean, financial independence was la la land. That was like the really rich people. They sure. were financial independent. But we, I think we were probably the ones who popularized the idea that this is available to anybody and everybody who was willing to pay attention. And yes, I mean, <laughs> somehow or another, we, uh, yeah, because the original seminar was called Transforming Your Relationship with Money and Achieving Financial Independence. And financial independence was such a big hook like what are you talking about that was an amazing promise and it really really caught people's attention um and of course it's what we had done sure. but we lived on uh, pittance you know <laughs> but we were free you know we were free and we we're free to explore the world in the way we chose to do it and i'm still there uh that's really my great joy is that i can place my attention onto what matters the most right now to me. That's fantastic. And I'm so glad it's, it's on the next version of your money or your life. I know I'm the only thing that's standing in, in the way of that new version. And I don't want to take up too much of your time. We've already gone <laughs> over an hour and I could talk to you for many more hours, but I know that, yeah, you, uh, you have work to do. So I usually end every interview with uh, just asking what's one piece of advice you would give to somebody pursuing financial independence, which seems like a ridiculous question to ask you. Um, but since I've done it in 33 other episodes. Well, I was just talking to a friend this morning about that one piece of advice thing. And um, because everybody asks it, you know, like you can get like this. I just went to this lecture on, on climate change, you know, and these slides about, you know, we're just about over the cliff and here's <laughs> terrible things that are going to happen. You know, this is like hugely big picture. You know, we have to get millions of people in the street, blah, blah, blah. And then the organizer says, well, what's one thing somebody can do tomorrow? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's like, yeah. So basically, I think here's what I think. I think the human mind can't stand being in the presence of something really big like changing their lives, you know, mm -hmm. like really rethinking their lives in light of 
what they deeply in their heart knows to be, know to be true. So to get off of that uncomfortable space, they want to do one thing. They want to get advice for one thing they can do, because one thing you can do is something you can wake up in the morning and do. But my experience is that by giving people one thing they can do, then they're off the hook and they don't do it. It's <laughs> the <Right. laughs> so one thing. However, given that you asked the question, and I have answered this before, I would say the one thing you can do is is track all the money that comes into and out of your life for one month and see what happens. Uh, yeah, that's a fantastic exercise. It's shocking, I'm sure, to pretty much everyone that does it. <laughs> <laughs> it I think it will be. And I think... Um, you know, there are easier ways to do it, but that my minuscule attention, you know, Joe used to say, you know, it's a meditation practice. It's like, you know, in meditation, they say, watch your breath. And, you know, when you, when you go off your breath, come back and watch your breath. Well, watching your pennies is like, is like a spiritual practice for living in a very material world. Every time you bring yourself back to that practice in the month that you're going to practice it, which I'm sure everybody listening is going to do, that's right. They, you will have momentary experiences of what do I think I'm buying when I'm buying this ice cream bar? What do I think I'm buying here? Is it making me happy? Yeah, no, I, I hope everyone does it. And yeah, start. Don't wait till the first of the month because that's just an excuse to put it off. Just start, start the, whatever day this gets released. Hopefully it gets released Thank soon. You. Um, and then yeah, prove, prove everyone wrong and do it and then comment them um, and tell us what uh, crazy things you found out about your spending that you probably didn't know. And I'm actually analyzing my own spending again, just because what makes you happy changes so much and you just have to constantly be making sure that that spending is aligned with it. And I'm coming from the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm a, I'm a bit too frugal and a bit too crazy. So I'm, I'm trying to find ways to make sure that all this, the highest percentage of my spending is going to happiness as possible. Um, so like, even if that means I have to increase it a little bit, like I could pay $500 and I live 30 miles outside of town. But if I pay $800 a month and you know, all 800 of that is, contributing to my happiness because um, I'm able to walk places and spend time in the park and see friends more often and all that sort of stuff. So, so I'm coming at it to at it from that angle, um, not where I can cut back, but just to make sure that the maximum amount of my spending is going towards happiness as possible. Um, so yeah, I think that's a great exercise to do no matter where you are in the journey to financial independence. I, I love it because I had to do that you know, after my cancer and I actually lived by myself and not in a group home, you know, sharing expenses and everything. When I had to live my by myself, my my monthly expenses tripled. Wow. And I had what I called cash register mind. I mean, like my mind was always working like, oh, my God, I just bought that thing. Mm -hmm. I have to figure out how to save that. I mean, I would go actually, <laughs> I would like, I would have bought something that was for my like little apartment, uh, my little apartment that I had all by myself. And then my mind would go like, you have to want three more things that are equal in price to that thing you bought and not buy them. And that's how you're going <laughs> to. Oh man! No, no, it was, I was nuts. I was just insane. And I had to break the back of that enough so that I could maneuver in a world as it is not in the world as it was. Hmm. Um, so I get it. I get it. Yeah. <laughs> Exercise. Some of you will figure out that you are self-denying, self-punishing, hyper-frugalist, <laughs> so proud of yourself for not spending money that you're a bore and you're insufferable to everybody. <laughs> you have to change another way. Exactly. So I'm, I want to say I'm so looking – thank you so much for your kindness and your interest, and I'm so looking forward to being with you guys, oh, really. and I'm so excited too, and yeah, I, I think you're really going to enjoy it. I don't know if you have any sort of expectations what it's like, but I've, I've gone to a couple of the Chautauquas in the past years, and they're just phenomenal, and you meet just the most amazing people with incredible stories, and I know I personally learn so much from everyone I talk to at these things, and you just form these really tight bonds, so – I'm so excited for you to experience it for yourself. Totally. 
I'm, I'm, I'm there. I'm just in a few short months. I'm there with you. Well, that's uh, so if anyone wants to find out more about you or get in touch, obviously your money, your life, I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Vicky Robin.com. Is that a good place for people to go? If they it wanna... is. My, my online, um, presence is really like a, like a vacant lot with weeds. Um, well, it'll get fixed soon, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so you can go to Vicky and, or you can go to your money, your org, and you know, there are resources there that you can learn a little bit more about, or the 2008 version of your money, your life is still quite available. Uh, I did a course through the shift network and that you can buy that course through the shift network. There's an audio version of the 2008, your money, your life, which is actually not me reading the book, but me talking you through the steps. And some people just love that oh, nice. because it's very personable and it's very connected. Like, I bet you feel this, but here's the idea and this is why you're going to do it differently. So oh, it's, it's, it's grandma Vicky taking you through through the program and that's uh, distributed through sounds true i can really recommend that cool i will link to all of those great things in the show notes and also i'll link to uk chautauqua page because i think they're well as of now or when i'm speaking this there i think there are a couple of spots still open uh whether or not they will be when this gets published is another story but i'll link to it anyway just in case anyone is wanting to join us in stratford upon avon which should be fantastic so so yeah vicky thank you so much i really appreciate you taking the time out especially when you're in the middle of updating such a classic book so i really appreciate your time and i can't wait to meet you soon yeah well i i knew i would find it inspiring and i have so i'm i'm juiced for the journey and i've probably got about 3 hours of writing in me right now oh good all right well thank you again i'll speak to you soon Okie dokie. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Finance.